Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and can be found on uh, page 772 of most of your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning. It's good to be with you all uh, this morning. Um, You didn't know I was going to do this, but uh, before I get into the message this morning, I just would like to take a few moments to instill in us how blessed we are to have uh, Pastor Jeff serve as our interim pastor um, during this transition time. Um, I think all of us have, have enjoyed his sermon series and, and the individual sermons that he's given, and I really, myself, have personally been blessed and appreciated his presence here. And I bring this up to you today because I also recently found out, uh, and it's not that timely, that you won an award. Um, so every year... Um, if this works. Christianity Today comes out with their Book of the Year Awards. And uh, for the 2019 Book of the Year Awards under um, the Church Pastoral Leadership category, we have as the winner, uh, Preaching is Reminding, Stirring Memory in an Age of Forgetfulness by Jeffrey D. Arthurs. So, (laughs) I think, well, I know he's too humble to have told you this, so I can tell you. And uh, I was reading a review. The reviewer writes, this book just became required reading for any young pastor I have the privilege of ministering, ministering to in the future. This book is engaging, informative, and lively, just like our preaching should be. So as a congregation, yes, we just wanted to congratulate you and, and celebrate with you. Uh, I think the, the award also came with like a million-dollar cash prize, so you can ask him about that after service. No, seriously, I don't think it came with any money, so I think what he would recommend is you go buy a dozen copies and give it out to your friends as gifts, things like that. Um, but as we uh, continue our sermon series on questions, we're going to get into a very important topic that I think is really relevant for today. Is Jesus the only way? 
you know, in, in this age of tolerance, the emphasis seems to be accepting of all religious views. Uh, many of you know I spend a lot of nights at Dunkin' Donuts. Sometimes I get to engage in uh, more spiritual conversations with people. A couple months ago, I, I met a guy. Uh, we introduced ourselves, and I could tell immediately uh, from his name that he was from the Middle East. Uh, he saw that I was reading the Bible, so he asked me if I was a Christian. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. And I asked, well, what do you believe in? And he said, well, I was raised Muslim, but I accept all religions. They all teach good things. And then another night, I had a conversation with a different guy. He shared with me, he said, I don't really care what people believe in because I respect all religion. And I think many of you probably know people who would have a similar response or, or say something similar. You know, pluralism seems to be the prevailing view because we're taught to be you know, politically correct. People who hold Pluralism, we're told, are politically correct because they're described as those who respect and support all religions. People who don't hold a pluralistic view, on the other hand, are taught to be intolerant because to seem or to even suggest that one's religious views may be incorrect means that you're criticizing, judging, and disrespecting that person and his or her religion. Worse, you may be you know, seen as even an unloving or uncaring person. And on its own, this, this belief is problematic or has problems because you know, can a person disagree with another person while still respecting his or her views? You know, for example, my wife and I may have certain views on something or she may have certain views on something that I don't agree with, but it doesn't mean I don't respect her. It doesn't mean I don't love her. Uh, so, you know, on its own, that, that statement in itself has problems. But as we get into the message this morning, we'll go deeper into why pluralism in itself has problems and why Christians make the claim that Jesus is the only way. So to start, let's look at some of the views that people have on different religions. Um, for those who are Christ followers, we believe in exclusivism. And to define this, Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga says there's two claims that make exclusivism, you know, Christian exclusivism. The first claim, if you can read it, is that the world was created by God, an almighty, all-knowing, and perfectly good personal being, one that holds beliefs, has aims, plans, and intentions, and can act to accomplish these aims. And then the second claim would be human beings require salvation, and God has provided a unique way of salvation through the incarnation life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus. So you can see from these two claims, well, you know, many people, even those of other religions, would agree to the first claim, you know, that there is a God, that God may be personable, that there was a God who created things and has a purpose. But only Christians would agree to the second, right? That Salvation is found in only Jesus. And it's the, this latter one that gets Christians criticized as, you know, being arrogant, you know, saying that they claim, you know, exclusive truth, that there is only one way to heaven or one way to salvation, which is through Jesus. So that's exclusivism. And then on, on the other hand, you have pluralism. And there's different ways to approach pluralism, but to make it easy, I just kind of broke it down and the two, uh, two categories, we could call it simple religious pluralism and sophisticated religious pluralism. 
So in their book, Stand Firm, the three authors define simple religious pluralism as basically this, the belief that all or most religious views are literally correct. Okay? All or most religious views are literally correct. You know, many people who have not put much thought you know, into this knowingly or unknowingly, unknowingly imply this when they say, you know, I respect all religions or all religions teach what's good. You know, what the Christians believe is true, what the Buddhists believe is true, what the Muslim believes is true, and so on. You know, if it works for that person, great. You know, but they may feel that, you know, that though all religions teach the same thing, you know, and, and sometimes they may even go further and say, you know, they all believe in the same God, they just use different terms. Right? You know, the Christian may refer to Jesus as his or her God. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, Muslims refer to Allah as their God. Hindus call, their, call one of their God Shiva. You know, but all roads, they will claim, lead you to the same God. And on the surface, you know, this may sound attractive. It, it affirms everyone's belief. It accepts everyone or, you know, seems to accept everyone. But those who are familiar with different religions know that this won't hold up because it's impossible for all of this to be true. You know, as we read in the Apostles' Creed, uh, you know, earlier we believe in a Trinitarian God. You know, I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That God is three distinct persons. Islam teaches that can't be right because God cannot have any division. Bud- Buddhists believe there's no personal God. Hindus believe in many gods. More so, if, you know, if you're a Muslim, you receive salvation by following the Koran and performing good deeds. If you're a Buddhist, you receive salvation by ceasing your, your own selfish desires and following the sacred path. If one is a Christian, you, know, you believe that there is nothing a person can do to earn salvation, and it's only through the grace and love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus that one can receive, once again, not earn, salvation. So with all these contradictory beliefs, how can they all be true? And what's even kind of more, uh, more humorous is what, what makes simple religious pluralism even less defensible is the fact that it in itself is a self-refuting claim. Because if you think about it, simple religious pluralism holds that all religions are true. So if a religion such as Christianity thinks that religious pluralism is wrong, and that would make religious pluralism wrong, right? Because Christianity is true. So it in itself is a self-refuting claim. So, so those you know, who have put much more thought up into the subject know that simple religion or religious pluralism can't really hold water. So some have come up with more sophisticated views of religious pluralism. So in its basic form, sophisticated religious pluralism holds that all religions are false as two specific claims about God and salvation. Okay? But unlike like an atheist who would you know, just say or just conclude that there's no God because of this, the pluralist would, would go on to further say that though all religions you know, are false to their specific claims, they are helpful in providing a framework for finding this transcendent reality whatever it is or he is or or she is. So they would say like a Buddhist who tells others that, you know, he or she must follow the eightfold path to reach enlightenment is wrong in that belief, 
but it does help a Buddhist find this higher being. You know, same for a Christian. They would say that Jesus, you know, if we say Jesus is the only way to salvation, that's completely wrong. But if you follow Christianity, it helps you find that higher reality. Columbia University professor, or religious professor, Paul Nitter, you know, kind of comes to this conclusion by saying this. Hopefully you can read it. If not, this is what it says. It says, God will always transcend. Always will be more than what human beings can know or what God can give them to know. Now, if this is what all Christians believe, if God for them can really be known but never fully known, then it follows with both logical and theological necessity that there cannot be only one way to know God. Why? Because there is always more to know about God. To hold to only one way is to close oneself to knowing more of the depths of the divine truth. When you read this you know, on the surface, once again, this, this sounds good. But when you really you know, just think about what he wrote and think over these words, he reaches a conclusion that's not needed. He says, because God can never be fully known, and this, this next line is important, then it follows with necessity. It follows with necessity that there cannot be only one way to know God. But this doesn't have to be, this conclusion is not a necessary conclusion. I mean, it's true that even for Christians, God cannot be fully known through our finite minds, right? We, we say, you know, we can never know all of God, you know, while on this earth. But why then is it necessary, as he concludes, that there must be more than one way to know God? You know, just because God transcends all that we know of him, doesn't imply that there needs to be many ways to know God. For Christians, once again, we can believe that we can never know all of God, but still hold that it is only through Jesus that one can know God. So his premise, I think, is a false premise. Another aspect of sophisticated religious pluralism can be shown through this example. I know it's hard to see. Many of you are familiar with the story of the blind man and the elephant, right? If you're not familiar with the story, you know, the story talks of several blind men being put on different parts, alongside different parts of the elephant, an elephant, and feeling it, and trying to find, or trying to describe what an elephant is like. So the blind man who, you know, is, is put by the tusk, feels the tusk, and says, oh, you know, an elephant is like a spear. On the opposite side, you have the blind man who's feeling part of the tail, and says, oh, no, no, the elephant is like a rope. Another blind man is put by the legs and like, no, no, you have it all wrong. An elephant is like a tree. So, so you get the idea. You, know, you see all these different descriptions and characteristics about the elephant. You know, they're all you know, correct in what they say, but they're only partially correct in describing the whole of the elephant, right? So those who support religious pluralism may say all religions are like the blind man trying to describe the elephant. They're all feeling or seeing different parts, yet they are finding and describing the same God. They are all partly right in their description, but wrong in what is the totality of this higher being. The biggest problem with this view, or with the person who uses this illustration, 
is that this illustration is told from the person of someone who's not blind. How can you see or claim that the blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you yourself claim to be able to see the whole elephant, right? Author Leslie Newbrigan, he writes, there's an appearance of humility in this protestation that the truth is much greater than all of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. So you see, pluralism is problematic because it's a view that claims to respect all religious views and is inclusive, but the problem with pluralism is it's not actually inclusive. The religious pluralist who uses the example of the blind man and the elephant is claiming to be the one who is not blind and can see the whole, but to say he can see the whole and those who follow the other religions are blind because they only see part makes him as arrogant as those he claims to say are arrogant because they're claiming their way is true. Right? So you, you can see that, I mean, this is kind of like a, a, a circular argument in the sense that trying to be inclusive is impossible. But it doesn't have to be wrong to be inclusive. We falsely equate pluralism with tolerance, acceptance, respect, but we can still respect and show love to those who don't agree with our beliefs, right? So the, arg- so the problem with pluralism is that it tries to achieve something that it really doesn't achieve. And the arguments used to, um, to, you know, to, to support pluralism are many times you know, self-contradictory or self-refuting statements. So then for us, who are believers, we have to ask, you know, why do we believe that Jesus is the only way? And so for the remainder of the, this message, we'll, we'll briefly, I want to answer this question by briefly looking at the person of Jesus and then show some additional scripture passages to support this view. So, so arguably, Jesus was the most unique person who ever walked on the face of this earth. There's many different ways and, and, you know, we could approach this. But to briefly do this, I want to just show you how he fulfilled prophecy and go through predictive prophecy. And, and you can do this, you know, we can look at many passages, but to make it simple, we'll just turn to Isaiah 53. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Isaiah 53, you can point out, uh, you can follow along as I point out several verses here. Just to give you some background while you're turning to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 was written 600 years before Jesus was born. And in chapter 53 of Isaiah, he writes of this person that God would send who would be the promised Messiah, the one who would be the Savior to bring redemption to mankind. Just by looking at, at, you know, at the beginning of chapter 53, we can stand in verse 2. You can see it speaks of this coming Messiah as one who had no physical beauty or majesty to attract people. Jesus was born to a peasant family in an insignificant town. Do you remember one of his early disciples even claimed, you know, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Verse 3. Verse 3 speaks of one that was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. 
I mean, this, this can easily be seen throughout Jesus' life. Verse, verses 4 to 5 in the end of verse 9 describe the promised Messiah as one who was to bear the sins of others, though he was personally guiltless. And we know Jesus is the sinless sacrifice. Verse 6 talks about this coming person who would be one to call the straying sheep back. And Jesus himself used this term in John chapter 10, right? When he talks about him being called to bring in his lost sheep. Verse 7 speaks of how this person would endure his suffering in silence. He would be bullied and tortured, but would not resist his enemy's deeds. And this is exactly what happened after Jesus was arrested and brought to trial and crucified. You know, they were amazed, his, his accusers, the, uh, the, the people he was put on trial before, they were amazed that he wouldn't speak up to defend himself. The first part of verse 9 speaks of how this person would be assigned to a grave with the wicked, referencing his crucifixion alongside two criminals. But then verse 9 also speaks of how he would be assigned a grave with the rich, which can almost seem contradictory, but we know in Jesus' life that after he was crucified with the two wicked men, he was taken down from the cross and put in the tomb of a rich man. Verse 10 speaks of how this person, though crushed and cut off from the living, would still see his offspring and prolong his days. So this obviously refers to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. I mean, the resurrection alone can be used to show the uniqueness of Jesus, and Pastor Jeff will get into that on Easter Sunday. But you can you know, just see how looking at, you know, just like these eight, nine verses, you know, and many others could be used, how they show that Jesus was unlike any person in history. He was this redeemer that was prophesied. And so as believers, we put our faith in Jesus because of this fulfilled prophecy. A second reason why we believe that Jesus is the only way is because Jesus himself claimed this. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, in context, Jesus knows that his life is about to end. He's in the you know he's he's gathered uh, for the last time with his disciples before his arrest. So he tells his disciples that they're soon going to be united, or that he's soon going to die and be united with his Father in heaven, and that he's going to prepare a place for them. In other words, his disciples will receive salvation and be united with God at their time of death. Many of the disciples didn't understand what he was saying, so Thomas asked him. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way to go? And so this is where Jesus replies in verse 6, I am the way. Notice he doesn't say, I am, I mean, I am the way. You know, yeah, notice in verse 6, he doesn't say, I am a way, but he says, the way. And to further reinforce it, he says at the end, no one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning that the only way of salvation is through Jesus. There is no, what, no other way. So for Christians, we believe in exclusivism because Jesus claims exclusivism. The final point regarding Jesus is also to look at Jesus' request in, verse, in Matthew 26. 
Right before Jesus uh, was arrested, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, there's many things he prays for as, as recorded in John's Gospel. But in Matthew's Gospel, we find this one request in verse 39. He says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. And then he repeats this request in verse 42. You see, Jesus knew what he was about to face. He knew the beatings, torture, the horrific death he would soon encounter. If there was a way he didn't have to endure this, he asked God, his Father, to provide that way out. But we all know the end result. God the Father didn't provide a way out. And it wasn't because God was some sick sadist who wanted to see his son suffer. It's because there was no other way for the price of redemption to be paid other than through the sufferings of Jesus. So we believe that Jesus is the only way because God showed us there was no other way. Two additional passages I want us to look at to show that Jesus is the only way. The first is the one we heard in our scripture reading today in Acts 4. Peter is addressing the Jewish religious leaders who had just arrested, uh, who, yeah, who had just arrested Peter and, and John for causing an uproar when they healed this lame beggar. So Peter, while addressing these leaders, concludes his speech in verse 12 by stating, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. A couple of things to point out here. First, we have to understand that speaker, uh, Peter is not just speaking to the limited Jewish context that he's in because he states that there's no other name under heaven by which people are saved. Not just no other name under Israel, or no, other, you know, no other name for the Jewish people, he said there's no other name under heaven, meaning all parts of earth. Okay. More importantly, there's the second thing. When Peter states that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, by using the word name, he is telling us that one is saved only by calling on the name of Jesus. And this is very important because there's some people, I, I don't know if they actually fall into the religious pluralist category. Um, they probably don't. I'm not sure what category they would fall in. But they believe that it's okay what other religions believe because everyone is eventually going to be saved by Jesus. In other words, you could be a devout Muslim, you could be a practicing Buddhist, an Orthodox Jew. Some might even go so far to say as you can be an atheistic pagan, you know, Satan worshiper, it doesn't matter. They would say Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of all mankind so everyone will be saved through Jesus. You don't actually have to know him or believe in him. You can still be saved through Jesus because Jesus' death was sufficient to pay the price. And although Jesus' death was sufficient, to pay the price for the sins of mankind. This verse shows that this conviction couldn't be further from the truth because in order to receive salvation, you must believe on his name. 
you must call on the name of Jesus in order to be saved. And to further reinforce this point, we can look at the other passage in our outline, Romans 10. I don't have it uh, on, the, on the PowerPoint, so if you want to turn to it, you can. You can see in Romans 10, Paul starts out by writing in verses 1 to 2. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So who's he referring to when he says, you know, them, for I testify about them? The Israelites, right? And these were not just carnal Israelites who were rebelling against God. He says in verse 2 that they were zealous for God. They believed in the Old Testament. They believed in the God who gave the commands and were trying to follow the Old Testament law. And what is his request in verse 1? My prayer is that they might be saved, implying that they're not saved. And as I said, it's not that they weren't trying. You know, verse 2 says they were zealous, but the error was that their zeal was not based on knowledge. And when you go further into the chapter, you'll see how Paul kind of explains that the problem was that the Jews had an erroneous view of salvation. And then towards the end of verse 8, in the beginning of verse 9, he tells them that this. He says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So how is one saved? By calling, once again, on the name of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the only way because Scripture declares that he is the only way of salvation. And people must call on his name. In other words, must come to him in faith to receive the salvation. So these are the reasons why Christians believe Jesus is the only way. And so what applications can we take from this message? Two takeaways. First is personalization personalization. Hopefully I show you that scripture teaches that Jesus is the only way and though the world wants you to have a more pluralistic view that there are many inherent problems with that. So do you believe that Jesus is the only way? That great theologian Homer Simpson in an episode of The Simpsons he thinks he's going to die. Something happens and he, and he thinks he's about to die. So he's, he's really scared, and so he cries out, I'm going to die. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, I love you all. <laughs> now you can think that you can hide your bets by doing something like this, right? But this will not save you. Scripture teaches that we come to faith in seeing Jesus as the greatest treasure who paid the ultimate price so that we could receive the ultimate prize. Just claiming to believe in Jesus so that you can get to heaven in case Christianity is right does not see Jesus in this light. So it will not save you. So have you come to Jesus in faith, seeing him as the only Savior? And if you've already done this, how does this affect your life? How does knowing Jesus as the only Savior affect your worship of him? How does it affect the way you pray to him? How does it affect the way you live for him? The second takeaway would be proclamation. 
personalization, a proclamation. If you believe Jesus is the only way, how does this impact the way you view others who do not know Jesus? Paul later in Romans 10, after sharing his desire for the Jews to be saved, after explaining how one must come to faith in Christ to be saved, writes at the beginning of verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You know, if all roads lead to heaven, if it doesn't matter what people believe in because they'll all reach salvation, then it doesn't matter what people believe and we can just sit back and relax. But if we truly believe that eternity hangs in the balance for people who are far from Jesus or even close to Jesus but have not accepted him yet, then we must sense an urgency to proclaim this message to them. This is also the basis, you know, not so, you know, you know, not so incidentally, this is also a basis why our church views missions as so important and why we spend so much money in support of our missionaries. You know, Paul writes at the end of verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So for those of you who may not be believers yet, if you can agree that the arguments for pluralism don't carry much weight, your job is to go on to a search to see and find out what is true. Examine the claims of Jesus versus other religions to assess what is right and what is wrong. And for those who claim to be Christ's followers, personalize it. You know, be convicted that Jesus is the only way. And as such, let it motivate you to proclaim it to others. Be a person that has beautiful feet that brings the good news of salvation to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us your word so that we can know that we can find salvation only in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to come down to this earth to love a perfect life die a horrific death and rise again to pay the penalty for our sins and proclaim victory over death so that we can be reconciled in our relationship with you. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is hearing this message but still doubting whether Jesus is the only way or even, whether, or even doubting whether they have any, believe in any, uh, believe in Christianity or any other religion. Lord, may you work in their hearts so that they can know the truth of Scripture, the truth of of the gospel, the truth that salvation is only found in Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.